Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome into episode seven of the Landscape Photography Show. Today on the podcast, I was really excited to get to talk to Zach Mills. Now, Zach is somebody that I had never talked to about photography before, let alone talk at all to. So I was excited to talk to him and, and get his take on photography in general. He's predominantly like a wildlife photographer. So he had some different thoughts on photography than a lot of landscape photographers might have. And I thought those were really compelling and useful for anybody listening who may be into any genre of photography that involves the outdoors. Now, we also talked to Zach a little bit about his partnership with Ian Plant, who we heard from in episode six. So I also wanted to get his thoughts about that and his work with Shutter Monkeys, which we also talked about last week, which I think is going to be a huge deal for landscape photographers, whether you're an advanced shooter or a beginner shooter. If you want any of the links that we discuss during today's podcast, you can go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Mills. That's M-I-L-L-S. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Zach Mills joining us on the podcast today. And Zach, you and me were, were just talking a little bit before we started the recording process about you had kind of an unconventional startup in photography. Why don't you fill us in on what that was and, and what your journey to this point looked like? Yeah, thanks. I, I use that word unconventional because I really think it defines sort of how I came into this space. You know, a lot of people take up photography for different reasons. And like many others, for me, the primary interest was travel. So on one of my very first international uh, trips back in 2004, I bought my first uh, point-and-shoot camera. At that time, it was 3.2 megapixels and is now <laughs> was much more expensive than many of the cameras that are much more advanced we see on the market today. So, I, I, And that was the entry into photography. And it was more, yeah, just sort of documenting the trip, remembering it, showing others, just a hobby, just something, you know, for fun. And I, meanwhile, I was in university training to become an economist. So I actually went quite far in that direction. Um, I got several master's degrees, started the PhD program when I was offered a job at the United Nations in Washington, D.C., one of the branches there. And that's where I found my life. Actually, I lived in Washington, D.C. for eight years. And my work uh, required a lot of international travel all over the place. So I was always on the go. And, and it's sort of my interest in photography was building over time. So that 3.2 megapixel point and shoot camera turned into a more advanced point and shoot camera and then turned into the entry level digital SLR. And then I kept going, going up in stages to the next iteration where let's say maybe by 2010, you know, I was starting to get more in tune to photography and completely self-taught, completely, completely learning as I went along, of course, asking a lot of questions, reading a lot on the internet. And then over the years, as I became sort of more interested and I think more advanced in my photography skills, 
um, I was getting a bit frustrated with uh, what was happening in, in sort of my work environment with the bureaucracy and politics. So I decided to leave that life behind and enter photography full time with have already built up quite a big portfolio and uh, that base. So it's unconventional in the sense that I never thought I'd be doing this full time. It wasn't my original plan, but here I am and I absolutely love it. Yeah, three megapixels is is obviously extremely small based on, you know, 50, 60 megapixel cameras that are coming out right now. Do you kind of buy into the megapixel race that's happening right now between some of the major camera developers? Or do you kind of see it more like just shoot with what you have and produce great images? I am 100% for shoot with what you have. And while I think we're all going to benefit from the megapixel, megapixel race in the long run, at this very moment, like I don't shoot with high megapixel uh, sensors. You know, most of my shots and recent trips, especially when I'm doing wildlife photography and I'm really trying to capture that one particular behavioral or high um, action, peak action moment, I'm going with a 20 megapixel uh, very fast to frames uh, per second camera. So that is my go-to. And I find that even though I have a higher megapixel camera with me, I default to the 20 megapixel one because I'm able to capture that moment with much greater certainty than some of the higher megapixel ones just based upon the autofocus and the frames per second. Now, of course, with technological advances, that's likely to change in the future and we'll all benefit from that. But to me, you know, you got to shoot with what you have. Um, I went through earlier stages in my life where I used to dream about the new equipment (laughs) and always think someday I'll have that and we'll change everything. Well, you reach a certain point where the equipment you have is pretty good and then it's up to you as a photographer to show what you can do. Yeah, I always relate it back to like, do you want to travel to the places that you want to go to or do you want a new camera? Yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it because this new gear is very expensive and there is a trade-off between a lot of the international spots that I go. They're not that cheap. So, And then when you go as well, like how much gear are you actually going to take? Because if you have a lot of gear, you can only shoot with one camera at one time. That's pretty much how it works unless you have more than two hands or another uh, impressive setup on the go. So you always need to think about, you know, flexibility, usability with all your equipment as well. Now you travel a lot, you step off the plane into a totally new location or a new country. What is kind of your workflow into finding locations or getting to the best spots that you want to get to, to produce the images that you do? You know, that's an interesting question, and the mindset has certainly changed over time. Like, I'm a researcher and planner by default, so I'll do a lot of research actually online. But in more recent years, I've found that I need to trust sort of other people I know and photographers a lot more. And the reason I say that, because if it's going somewhere new I've never been, I've, I have general expectations of what it's going to be, but I'm always weighing that against the cost of a new experience. Because I know I can go to certain favorite locations of mine and come up at, back with a great image. And if I'm going to go to a really expensive place, I want to make sure that I'm going to come out of there with something good. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of research. But it, more recently, it's definitely talking to people who have been there. And I can really drill down because, you know, I'm, talking, I'm thinking a lot more about 
proximity to the subject, if it's wildlife or the landscape, what type of life I'm trying to get, what type of access there is, the, what is, how many other people will be on this experience with me. Obviously, the more people, the more tourists, it usually makes it more difficult to get the shot. So there's a lot going through my mind, but having been to almost 90 countries now, I'm pretty laid back and I've learned to go with the flow. So there's a lot of patience ingrained, built into me. So, uh, yeah, I really try to enjoy the moment and absorb it all in, not only to get the shot, but also to appreciate the new experience that I'm having, the culture, the history, and learn as much as I can whenever I go somewhere. Do, do you find photographers are, are willing to be generous about giving up tips or, or locations? Very few. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a lot of photographers who guard sort of their prized locations uh, with their lives or, or behind a certain paywall, if you will. But, you know, I've developed quite a network over the years of people who travel and there we sort of help each other out. And, you know, I get it because there's with the Instagram sort of shots that people are going for these days, the increase in international travel, a lot of really cool spots are now overrun or filled with tourists and it sort of loses that magical moment. And that one composition that really stood out now is everyone's taking that shot. So to really get something unique, you need to go somewhere off the beaten path and that for those places become prized possessions. So I get it, but it's nice to have a network of people you trust that you can help one another out. How could somebody approach a photographer? I mean, I know I've been approached several times via email from people who, who kind of want to know like, hey, that, you know, waterfall that you found, where is it? Um, or, or something along those lines, how should somebody approach a photographer? And then also keep in mind when that photographer may not respond with the answer that they want of offering up that location, like how should they react to it? Yeah, it's a tricky question. And I understand both sides because I used to be in that position where I was very new to this field. And, you know, I'd think about writing people and getting their advice um, and not get a lot of responses. But, you know, I'll say a couple of things. One is a lot of times when I get emails, um, we're pretty busy. We're traveling a lot. We do the best to respond, but usually we may not get back to everyone. But, you know, I just think honesty is the best policy and so why you want to go. And, and depending upon if that place, you know, has a lot of value to me or not, it sort of goes into everything that I think about. But it's not a straightforward answer. And um, yeah, it's a tricky one. I'm not quite sure I have the magical answer for that one. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> hey, like, I believe that I'm like infamous for having zero patience. So I don't have a lot of experience in waiting on like wildlife photography. Although when the moment appears and, and, and kind of presents itself to me, I will take the photo but I don't necessarily go out and seek out an exact wildlife image that I have in my mind. And, and that's just because of the waiting aspect. When you go out and photograph wildlife, like within a landscape or with, within a location, what, what do you do while you wait? I've always wondered that of, of photographers like you. <laughs> that's a good, that's a great question. And I'm laughing because if you don't have patience in wildlife photography, you're going to be frustrated 99.9% of the time because there's so much waiting, especially if you want to really push the envelope, push your creative limits and get something really unique. Because let's face it, a sleeping lion is not going to be the winning shot. 
and right. lions sleep a lot during the day. So, you know, there's just usually I'm, when I'm, I'm doing this type of photography in, um, you know, say the cats, for example, I go to East Africa a lot in Masamar and Kenya, and I'm there with my guides. So we talk a lot, um, depending upon uh, the cell phone reception. We may be, you know, chatting with uh, loved ones back home or checking the news. There's a lot that happens while you're waiting, one, for interesting behavior. Well, let me back that up. One, find a subject. Two, interesting behavior. And three, great light. And it takes a lot for those things to come together. And it certainly doesn't happen every day, even though you may be searching for it. But yeah, it's a lot of just, you know, hanging out. It's like uh, buddies of yours, just hanging out, catching up, talking about things. If you don't have anything to talk about, think of something new and see where it goes. Um, but, you know, I can honestly say it, it's worth it because when everything does come about, so when everything does come together, when all the sort of preconceived visual elements that you had in your mind, you see them unfolding in the scene in front of you and you're able to capture that shot, you very, very quickly forget about all those hours waiting and you only remember the shot that you're pretty proud of. So that's sort of the deal with wildlife photography. Yeah, it is funny how like so much attention is brought to the final image, but like what what we remember as photographers is that waiting period, like getting there three hours before sunset and just like sitting in your car and eating trail mix or something or like having that weird conversation or seeing something strange happen in the field. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if you hike in 10 miles, you've been bitten by hundreds of mosquitoes, you're sweating, you're falling down, you're cut and bruised from trekking to the rainforest, and then you get an image and you think, oh, you don't know how, like, there's so much sweat and tears went into producing this, and then you show it to people and they're like, meh, it's not your best. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just the reality. That's just, it's a hard life and wildlife photography, landscape photography as well, and other types of photography. Anytime you put in this type of effort and work, it's just the reality of it that you're ultimately judged by that final image and whatever went into it matters a lot less. Yeah, I think it's true for all art forms though. I was, I was recently talking to a tattoo artist and he was talking about, you know, some of the work that he shared on Instagram and how like the easiest stuff that took no effort gets the most likes or the most attention. And then the stuff that he's most proud of, you know, that took six hours to do on somebody in a really tough location gets like nothing. And I was like, dude, you have literally no idea like hiking <laughs> two days to a place yeah. and then nobody likes it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the reality of the, the profession that we live in. And, you know, it's interesting with this social media era where the more sort of upfront in your face compositions definitely generate the most following, the most likes, where to me, sort of the wider angle, more subtle, more creative, more comprehensive images people don't get because they're often viewing it on a small screen. So that's also sort of the reality we live in too. Can you make something great out of nothing that's really happening? You can. Um, and I say that because amazing things happen all the time and they often will happen unexpectedly. So, you know, I do a lot of wildlife photography, maybe like two thirds of my time. And lots of times I'll be in that mood where you're sitting down, you're just waiting, you're waiting things out. And all of a sudden, 
for one sort of one or two seconds, something really cool happens and you just got to be ready. I mean, it's like that with landscape photography too. So many times, you know, I'm hiking, it's raining, and then you think, well, should I even be out here? Should I turn back? And then if you keep going, despite being drenched, the clouds can part and you can get this magical, magical light. So, you know, of course, if it's like very, very downpour rain, you're not going to take your equipment out for a variety of reasons. One, there's no light. One, two, it may get uh, damaged. But, you know, for all other situations, you're, you're not going to take the photo that when you're not in the field. So like if you're at home, you're not going to get the shot. And I've just been, you know, so many times turn back and then see mm-hmm. magical things happen from a distance. So now much more the mindset that just push through. Let's see, because there is a small chance that something really amazing could happen. And if so, I want to make sure that I capture it. Yeah, I always I always point it back to like regret. What what which one are you gonna regret more? I was just in Joshua Tree National Park and I had shot literally put in a twenty hour day the day before and and just wanted to sleep and I slept through sunrise and woke up. And the, the weather forecast said it was going to be clear skies the next morning. So I was like, meh, you know, not really going to be that much to go out and shoot. And I woke up and it had like the most beautiful, <laughs> like wispy clouds overhead. And it's just that like regret of, you know, I probably could have gotten something pretty special that morning. And I think regret that way is like poison and it starts to eat at you. Um, so, so that's kind of as a photographer, what, what pushes me through going out. And and even if you don't come back with anything, at least you're happy you went out and gave it a shot. I fully, fully agree. And that story totally resonates with some of the experiences that I've had. And let me tell you, it's the worst feeling because, you know, Mm -hmm. when you get magical light in the sky with the clouds lighting up and very dynamic patterns and formations, that's pretty rare. And if you're able to find really interesting foreground, that could be a very like amazing winning shot. And to know, wake up and have slept through it and know that you missed that and you may never see like the, the visual elements align like that again, that's, that's a frustrating feeling. So yeah, you definitely got to push through whenever you're on location as much as you can. And never trust weather apps on your phone. They're terrible. Like I live here in the Canadian Rockies and let me tell you, like they are not accurate. So there could be thunderstorms on one side of the mountain and you drive around to the other side and it's beautiful shooting conditions. So, you know, you got to be out there because you never know what's going to happen. Do you have a favorite that you use? Because I'm definitely in the market for one after that missed experience. Uh, you know, what I do now is I try and triangulate between a variety of different apps. Uh-huh. So I use like all the standard ones, um, weather.com and like all the ones that are easily accessible. So I'll, I'll cross-reference a bunch of them. More recently, I've been using an app that I've been told about by pilots actually and other photographers called Windy, which uh, tells you the direction of the wind in addition to a satellite image of the area and all the other standard weather uh, forecasting features. And I find that found that to be pretty good, slightly more reliable, though, with any weather prediction, it is after all a prediction. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check that out for sure. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about like our experiences and, and some of our travels. 
I want to know the story of your most memorable like photo experience. And I say experience just because I, I think that's what a photograph is. It's not like it's so easy to cop out and ask, what's your favorite photo? But what is your favorite experience behind the photo? And it may be of your favorite photo or it may, it may be of something that you didn't even get. Oh, that's a question that I get asked a lot. And it's so difficult to answer because I sort of put different experiences into different boxes because they're so different. Um, So let me cop out a little by giving you just two examples of which I have many. Um, But if you look on my website, one of the first images you see is the oldest image that exists on my website. It's from actually 2011, and it's from Indonesia, and I was actually hiking down into uh, the crater, at first up to the crater rim and then down into a volcano called Ijen Volcano. And okay, I see it. Yeah, this volcano came to, I came to know about it through a profile on the BBC News about the world's most challenging jobs. And actually what happens here is there's sulfur mining, whereas people in the local community well, every day, you know, trek three miles up to the summit, another mile down to the bottom, load up more than they actually weigh. So greater than body weight uh, in pounds of sulfur, put that on their shoulders and sort of um, two, like a two basket type beam set up and then hike up the mountain and then hike down three miles. It's one of the most amazing things to actually witness that the human body can do this day in and day out every day of the year. But what really makes this place so special is because they have inserted these pipes in um, into the volcano and they put through some gas and that really raises the temperature, which allows the sulfur to break off, to melt and break off. And at night, this sulfuric gas turns blue. So it's known as the blue fire and one of the only places in the world you can see this phenomenon. So the deal is you get there. You, you, you're at your hotel or wherever you're staying and you get picked up at 11 at night and then you drive an hour and a half, you get to your destination and then you start hiking up this uh, several miles to the crater rim in the dark. And this is not your leisurely stroll. This is a very strenuous hour and a half hike up and you get there and you look down and very, at the very distance, you see sort of these blue flames emerging. And then as you start to descend, the blue flames become larger. And then what I really liked about the moment I captured is the miners work throughout the night, the sulfur miners, because it's cooler. So there's a lot of activity and they have headlamps on. And um, so the moment I was able to capture was this miner sort of assessing sort of the next point of extraction surrounded by this blue flames in all directions. And to me, it's, it's very unique and otherworldly, otherworldly, sorry. And that's why I really like it. Not only, that one is a case of there was a lot of effort that went into it, but also everything sort of presenting itself. And the interesting thing is I've gone back there in subsequent years, but was never really to capture that same type of moment. So that photo that's, you know, eight years old now um, with older technology still stands the test of time. And what about the second one? Yeah, that's right. The second one is much more recent. In fact, about a month ago, I went up to Alaska uh, with the goal to photograph uh, brown bears. So brown bear, grizzly bear is a brown bear. There's just sometimes this distinction between 
Brown bears on the interior are called grizzlies, where brown bears on the Pacific coast are called coastal brown bears. They're all brown bears. So whether you say grizzly, brown bear, same thing. So I was going up to Alaska to photograph the largest brown bears on the planet. And of course, they're so large because they eat the salmon. They're swimming upstream spawn. The salmon will come in through Bristol, through Bristol, sorry, Bristol Bay and uh, through the various creeks, come back to the point of origin. And so the bears congregate in these areas when it happens. Now, before I was going, it was my first time. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. I was being going with a very trusted, uh, recommended friend and guide uh, who worked with an outfitting company and they said, just come. But, you know, a lot of people start questioning whenever you're going to photograph bears, like, are you going to be okay? Are you going to be safe? Oh, you're camping with bears? How's that going to work? And so there was a little bit of uncertainty on this trip. But let me tell you, once I got there, it absolutely blew my mind. And still to this day, I cannot really justly explain absolute, how absolutely amazing it was. But let me do my best. So brown bears and bears in general have a bad rep. They're fear in a lot of places. They, a lot of people think that if you see a bear, it's going to attack and kill you. But up in Alaska, the place that I went, it was a completely opposite experience. You know, the bears have somewhat of a habituation to people. A lot of people fish in the river. They're used to seeing people, people around. But they're not that interested because they're much more interested in the, in the sushi buffet that's available to them as the salmon swim right past. So, you know, in a, this set of circumstance, you can actually get super close and be very safe to when the most feared animals on the planet. And these bears weigh upwards of uh, close to a thousand pounds for the females and the males are over a thousand pounds. So when I see, there was a few moments where you know, the bears, we were sort of sitting at the creek right on the edge of the water and the bears would be on the other side uh, of the, the, the river and running straight towards me and diving into the water to catch the salmon. And my camera lens would actually get wet from the water. And any apprehension that I may have had before this trip very quickly dissipated because I felt completely safe. Of course, the guides were phenomenal. And, um, but there were a few, there was one other moment as well where this large female brown bear just walked past us a few feet away and I was able to capture it with sort of a wider angle shot and she's looking right at me. And, and to me, like these moments, I feel like it's a connection, you know, a connection with the, the world that we live in. And it's, it's really, truly amazing to experience that and also to be able to photograph it and be happy with your photographs. Unfortunately, this area I must, must mention is under threat. There's a proposed uh, pebble mine that by all scientific accounts would completely decimate this ecosystem. So there's a lot of people working against this and trying to show the value of air tourism, the fishery tourism, hunting tourism, which have all aligned sort of against this proposed pebble mine. And that effort is being spearheaded. And I'm hoping that this area, which is so amazing and really one of the best trips of my life, and I'm absolutely hooked now and can't wait to go back every year, I'm really hoping that this ecosystem is preserved. And I think as photographers, you know, it's one thing to go to amazing places and to share it with everyone. That's fine. But unfortunately, a lot of the most amazing places on the planet are sort of under threat or could be significantly changed. For, by a variety of factors, whether it's mining, climate change, deforestation, you name it. So I, I feel as I've continued my photographic journey to be more sort of 
telling these stories that, yes, this was an amazing moment, but there's a bigger background story here that may not allow this moment to exist in the future. How important is it to acquire that skill of storytelling through photography to not only share like the information that you just shared, but also protect these areas, inform people on how to visit safely and appropriately? And, and is that like an acquired skill or is it just something that comes naturally? I think personally, I found as I continue in this evolution of being a photographer, storytelling is becoming the most important element. Um, and I'll say that for a variety of reasons. Like one, it's really nice to capture a sort of an amazing sunset or a special moment with light. That's fine. But I find that the more compelling, the more powerful ones, the type of photos that you can stare at for a long time, those are the ones that tell the best stories. And those are the photos that I'm seeking out more and more and more. So, you know, I, I think as photographers, people also want to know the background. And if you can sort of clearly articulate the story, and this by all accounts is a learned skill, maybe it comes more naturally to others, but it's definitely a skill you can develop. I think that goes a very, very long way. And if you look at sort of the gold standard, what's viewed of photography at National Geographic, all those photos are built upon storytelling. They do not exist in isolation. They exist as part of an overall portfolio of images to express a certain feeling, convey knowledge, you name it. So how I've approached photography is, you know, that's influenced how I approach photography, where now, you know, some people just try and get a variety of amazing shots of all different scenes and subjects and locations. But now I think a bit of it more as a storytelling element to have sort of a, a distinct portfolio of subject A, subject B, subject C. And what that means is I'll return to the same locations year after year after year to tell these stories. And a lot of my photos, for example, are used by conservation agencies to promote conservation, promote tourism, um, highlight the issues that are facing some of these areas. And I think I feel very good that, you know, I'm not only benefiting from this photo, but it has a wider purpose. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's Visual Wilderness. Visualwilderness.com has tons of resources for anyone interested in the outdoor art of photography. It has tons of tutorials for post-processing, in-field work, and they also have yearly subscriptions. If you want any information on that and the links to get to my courses since I'm a contributor on that site or a membership to get accesses to all the courses, you can go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash mills and find those links there. Also, for a limited time, we're giving a 33% discount on all of my courses. Again, you can go to that link davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash mills and use code david33 during checkout to get your hands on that limited time offer and discount code.
now you're the other 50% of Shutter Monkeys. And we recently heard yes. about Shutter Monkeys from Ian Plant, who was recently on the podcast. Um, when he approached you with the idea, what, what was your first thought of, of what was going through your mind? Well, my first thought is, why didn't you approach me sooner? But there's a background <laughs> story to this. So uh, I'm not sure what Ian has said, um, but let me tell you my version of the event. So Ian and I have a long history, and it's great history together. Um, we first sort of met up online, I think, maybe four or five years ago, something like that. And uh, since then, we've traveled many places all around the world together. And to be honest, Ian owes me because I saved him from the elephant seal in the Falkland Islands. It could have gone very south for him. <laughs> um, but, you know, I helped, I helped him out in that situation. So Ian is a guy that I have the utmost respect for as a photographer and photo educator because he's not satisfied with mediocrity or getting the same shot that other people are getting. He's really, really pushing himself to get unique compositions all around the world. And the way he sort of sees scenes and visual elements, I've learned so, so much from him. And, you know, he's one of the best photo educators that I've ever seen because, you know, when I first started working with Ian, we were producing these videos and he's like, great, talk about the scene in front of you. And for me, it was all intrinsic, sort of natural, instinctive. And being able to explain the lingo in a clearly concise and cogent manner was not easy at the beginning. And Ian has a real master, master um, uh, what's the word? He's a master at this. So um, when he approached me, we had sort of been working uh, in that direction uh, of Shutter Monkeys, uh, which I'll come back to in a sec. We've been moving in that direction, working with another company, and then we sort of felt you know, we can probably do this on our own and do it pretty great. So that's how the concept came to be. In fact, Ian had this concept in his mind for 10 years, germinating. He actually owned that domain name for over 10 years. And it was always germinating. And then uh, when we started talking together, you know, and it's certainly evolved in the past year and a half um, about what we want to do, I get more and more excited each time we talk about it. So just so people know what it is, another message, it's a new online platform where we provide premium photography education. We do a lot of inspirational um, videos, and photos, and it's more than that. It's a community where we're trying to build this community that's a safe space where everyone can help one another. You know, a lot of uh, places now you place, you can post photos. There's a lot of negative or, or worse comments, and that's certainly not our site. So we're really trying to not only take amazing photos, we're trying to bring people along with us on that experience. And when I say take amazing, I mean, just not the standard stuff. Our tagline is Shutter Monkeys, the evolution of photography. And what we mean by that is really pushing the creative boundaries, taking photos that no one else is taking, going to far exotic locations or even locations closer to home, but really putting in the effort, using the available light, and the scene in front of us to capture something magical. So that's our mission. That's what we've started. We're only about two months now uh, that we've been up and running, but we have a lot of big plans for the future. How important is that community aspect for people who want to learn these techniques? It's so important because, you know, anytime you see a photo, you like for me now, I, and I understand photography, I understand post-processing. When I see amazing photo, 
I'm always like, wow, how did this happen? What's the backstory? That's sort of what I think about. And for people who are new to photography or beginning or even advanced, you know, the day you think you know everything about photography is the day you should, you know, retire because that will never happen. <laughs> I'm always learning new things all the time, pushing myself, um, trying new things. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. So we have a safe space where people can interact, ask questions, post photos, ask, ask for comments or critiques. We all try and build each other up. You know, we all want everyone else to become better photographers, ourselves included. And the truth is we get a lot of um, inspiration from our community members as well. So, you know, they inspire us to keep pushing ourselves with the great images that they post. After watching a Shutter Monkeys video or like some of the courses that I know that you guys have planned um, just from talking to you and Ian, what can somebody take away from that and apply to their own photography? What we really want to give people is a new mindset. We want to tell people, look, it's not about the gear. Gear is important, yes, at times. But more important is that artistic mind that you want to cultivate. You want to cultivate your own creative process so that when you're in the field, you're not thinking about taking mere snapshots or like a documentary record that's proof that you saw something. You want to go beyond that step to the next level where you really think about composition, light, sort of the mood, and bring it all together so you're able to produce something that's more unique and that you're really proud of. And we try and do this through mostly video-based instruction. And, you know, there's a few other companies uh, and platforms out there doing this now. But what we're really trying to convey is, look, you don't need to watch hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, we're really cutting through all the noise and bringing to you the most important insights and knowledge and mindsets that we've developed through our respective careers and distill that in a very concise but visually appealing manner. So that's our presentation. It's easily digestible. And we really think based upon and based upon the, the feedback that we've gotten so far, it is resonating a lot with our, with our um, community members and course purchasers that look, while, of course, there are no silver bullets, if you cultivate and develop your photography mindset and your artistic mindset, you can go a lot further in your photographic journey. Give us give us one compositional tip before we sign off. And, and this, I'm not allowing you to cop out here and say, like, rule of thirds, golden mean, <laughs> leading lines, none of that garbage. Like, actually yeah. give me something that I may not have heard before. Okay. Well, first, let me say in the rule of thirds, it is not a rule and it should be broken all the time, depending <laughs> upon the scene in front of you. So do not adhere to any rule in photography. Absolutely. Any rule is meant to be broken and should be broken when the conditions allow for it. So let me get that out of the way. All right. But one thing, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just say it for... Um, this is my general approach and to not only to all genres of photography, really when I'm thinking about photography and taking a photo in the moment, I'm thinking, is this photo going to be good enough to print and put on a wall and then stay there and I'll be happy with it. That's sort of the standard that I'm looking at that I'm looking for. So I really want to get something good. And that sort of translates to the compositional side where all of a sudden you're not only looking what you mentioned earlier, leading lines or whatever, but you're also thinking much more broadly about all the different visual elements in a scene. 
And for me, I, I prefer additional visual elements, uh, more complex photos. There is another type of photography, often in the fine art, where there is more sort of the simplicity, subject shot type approach. But for me, I prefer the more complex with lots of visual elements. So that means I have to be very sort of careful in how I set up the composition. So even things at the edge of the frame or little branches or brushes or whatever that, you know, later on I may be unsatisfied with, you know, because I try and capture everything at that moment. I'm not a big post-processing person. I don't, I will never sort of replace this guy or do anything like that. I'm always sort of capturing it at the, at the moment. So I pay a lot of attention to all the visual elements in a scene. That's probably a general sort of answer, but more specifically, that means I'm thinking a lot about the background, what you see in the background. I don't want to clip anything, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's hard to distill in one, but it's just, yeah, you really got to look at that scene like that's the final project. It's not just the subject that's the shot. The whole scene is the shot and the subject is part of that overall scene. Well, Zach, great stuff, man. I, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast joining us, sharing all of your stories and thoughts on photography in general. And, and, and I know there's something here, probably a few things that people can take away just from this interview. If you want to see any of the stuff that we talked about, you can head over to the show notes that I gave the link for at the beginning of this podcast episode. So go and find those there. So Zach, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.